Well, many of us have heard or even read it. It was first published in 1936 by Simon & Schuster, the author Dale Carnegie, the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It sold 250,000 copies in its first three months and made it to the New York Times bestseller list uh, by uh, by year's end, where it remained for two years. It has since sold, are you ready, over 30 million copies worldwide, still available on Amazon, selling over 250,000 copies annually, making it one of the best-selling books of all time. In a 2013 Library of Congress survey, it was listed as the seventh most influential book in American history. Those are some amazing credentials. How many of you have heard of it or even read it? Yeah, look around, amazing. The book went through a major revision in 1981, and since then, newer editions include the following four sections. Go through these quickly. Fundamental techniques in handling people include the idea that you don't criticize, condemn, or complain. Sounds reasonable enough. Next, six ways to make people like you includes being genuinely genuinely interested in other people, smiling, <laughs> and making the other person feel important. Next, how to win people to your way of thinking includes showing respect for other people's opinions, never saying you're wrong, and beginning in a friendly manner. <laughs> and then last, be a leader, how to change people without giving offense or arousing resentment. It's a little longer, but they're good. Include, uh, includes beginning with, a, with praise and honest appreciation. Um, only calling attention to other people's mistakes indirectly, talking about your own mistakes before criticizing others, um, using questions instead of giving direct um, orders, letting the other person save face, using encouragement, and making the other person happy about uh, uh, doing what you suggest. All of that seems like good advice, right? So let's read our text today to see how John the Baptist used these principles to win friends and influence people. I see you read the Bible. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. I guess name calling wasn't on the list. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit and keep fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, eternal fire, by the way. And the crowds were questioning him saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the, the, the man who has two tunics is to share it with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Undoubtedly, John the Baptist would not make the list of the 100 most influential people in American society today. In fact, John would probably not be invited to speak in most evangelical churches or conferences, certainly those trying to be seeker sensitive. (laughs) To start with, he would need a bath, a haircut, and a change of clothes, and he would certainly need to learn how to smile John, you need to be more winsome. Read a book on how to do evangelism. 
The truth is, his message, his ministry, only lasted for about six months, no wonder, before he was arrested and ultimately beheaded for his less-than-civil criticism, even condemnation of a leading governmental official of the day. And yet, Jesus later called John the greatest man who ever lived. Well, at least till that time. You see, you can be greater than John. How? By reading the right book, learning and applying um, some proper social decorum? Maybe not. I'm not suggesting that there is no place for being kind and gentle with your words, being nice, although you should know that the word nice appears nowhere in the Bible. I'm not suggesting we be harsh and unloving. I am suggesting that our message should also contain truth, even difficult truth, and a sense of urgency. That our message might just offend people and their lifestyles, and if it doesn't, maybe, just maybe, our message is not a biblical one. Jesus, you see, did not come to make our lives happy and prosperous. He came to change us because we desperately need to be changed. And his coming started with this rather uncivil forerunner called John the Baptist. What evangelist would model their lives after him? What church would adopt this style? The last time that we were together, we found at the end of Luke chapter 1 that John, presumably after his Aged parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, died, moved out to the wilderness. Other gospels tell us that his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. His attire was camel hair. That's why I wore this today. <laughs> you thought it's just because I hadn't lost some weight. That's also true. Um, <laughs> and a leather belt. And he was uh, not allowed to drink wine or liquor. Uh, 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 he wasn't allowed to, so we assume that he may have been a Nazarite from birth, which means he never cut his hair, making him quite the sight. There in the Judean wilderness, he waited for the word of God to come to him, and about 30 year, and at about 30 years of age, it came. He began preaching all over the district of the Jordan to the east of Jerusalem. His message generally was one of a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We have found this was a fulfillment of the prophecies made uh, in Isaiah and Malachi concerning him, that he would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. He would be the forerunner of the coming Messiah, the Christ. Which brings us to our text today. Here Luke gives a little more information about John's message and its strange effectiveness. Let me give you the very simple outline of the text. It's the need for repentance and then the fruit of repentance, or we could call it the proof, the proof of repentance. As he began preaching, many came out to hear him. You see, there were those looking for the Messiah, those looking for deliverance and rescue from their oppressive Roman overlords. But in his preaching, John zeroed in on a greater need, the same need that we frankly have today, rescue from personal sin, not public oppression. Did you hear what I just said? Personal sin, not public oppression. That seems to be all that we focus on today. Who is oppressing who? But our biggest problem is our own sin, 
and its result. And while John's was a hard message, it was also a true message. He preached the need for repentance from sin and transformation. You see, repentance is not just feeling sorry about your sin. It is turning from sin and turning in faith to Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, that message is largely missing in many churches and gospel presentations today. Uh, Jesus is presented as some sort of cosmic genie, rub the lamp and you get what you want, a celestial vending machine, put in a little prayer, pull the lever and good things will come out. God did not send his son to leave us in our miserable conditions pursuing things that lead to death. He sent his son to save us from our sin and the deserved coming wrath. So let's look at this need for repentance and, well, clearly John's need for winning friends and influencing people. Look at verse 7. The crowds were coming out to hear him and be baptized by him. As we talked uh, about a couple of weeks ago, this baptism was actually a sign that pointed to or signified something greater than itself. It, to be clear, it was not that being dunked was the end goal. In other words, baptism is not efficacious in washing away sin. It is an outward symbol of an inward reality. What the people needed was repentance, and the external washing was a picture pointing to that which had already taken place inwardly. They had turned from their sin. You see, again, it is not enough to do some religious things. Very interestingly here, he's not going to tell them to go make some sacrifices at the temple. That's interesting. Not going to tell them to go to church. To observe some religious rite. You'll be okay, just get baptized. No. It has always been a matter of the heart, a changed heart, a repentant heart, a new heart. It's the same today. To be clear, as I suggested earlier, John's baptism was not Christian baptism. It was simply preparing for the coming of the Messiah. But now we know Jesus has come. His death and resurrection for sinners is an accomplished fact and the foundation of our faith. We're going to celebrate that this morning in communion. Our, our baptism points to sins being washed away, yes, by faith looking back to the finished work of Christ. But like John's baptism... It does not, baptism does not wash away sins. Jesus did that work for us on the cross. But repentance, that is turning from sin, is absolutely necessary. I'm going to say this very clearly for receiving Christ today. As, as, it is as necessary as it was in preparing for Christ to come then. The challenge today is many come to Jesus but have no intention of leaving their sin. That, that will not work. It is not that leaving your sin saves you, but it is proof that you have been saved. You cannot come to Jesus and expect to cling to your sin. That's what repentance is all about. 
So the crowds came to him out in the wilderness, the journey of a day or two, if you were coming from uh, the environs of Judea or uh, Jerusalem, uh, longer if you were coming from Galilee, to hear his message and be baptized by him. He was gaining some popularity. Think about it. I mean, they're talking thousands of people. John, you got a movement going here. Be careful what you say. You've got the makings of a megachurch. Guard your words. Be nice. Don't be offensive. Win some friends. John's very welcoming words were, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Was he smiling when he said that? Literally, he says, you offspring of snakes. Very inviting, don't you think? And if we are trying to win friends, this is not the way to do it. Don't miss this. By such welcoming words, John was actually accusing them of being the offspring of the great serpent, the devil. (gasps) How could he say such a thing? I don't know. Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 8. There, they were also claiming Abraham as their father, and Jesus said, you are of your father the devil. Seems like Jesus could have used Carnegie's book as well. What is going on here? What is the point? If you have been around, you have heard me say it many times. The gospel includes some very bad news. In fact, there must be bad news before there can be good news. The bad news is simply this. We are bad. We are sinners. We have a need that only one can meet. No amount of being good, doing good will help. You can say you love Jesus. You can say that you are a follower of Jesus, whatever that means. But if you don't have a transformed life, then Satan is still your father. That's so harsh. It's what John and Jesus said. No amount of doing good, being good will help because we are by nature at the core of our beings evil, sinful, the offspring of the great serpent, the snake, the devil. You say... I need to read the book. I have. I have read the book. And it declares me a sinner in need of a Savior, helpless and hopeless to do anything about my lost, miserable condition. Any gospel that does not present the need is no gospel at all. When you die and you go knock on the proverbial pearly gates and Peter, no, Jesus meets you there and asks, why should I let you into my heaven? If your response begins with, well, I, you get no entrance. The only response is, well, you. It's what you have done for me, Christ. I don't deserve to be here. 
John began with bad news, highlighting their need. The good news of the gospel must include the bad news of the need. Again, there can be no good news without bad news. How is it good if there is no need? Again, this is the problem today. I'll just add some Jesus to my already wonderful life. I have some very bad news for you. Your life is not wonderful. It is terribly depraved. Depraved. Is that the way you receive Christ and the remedy of your sin and need of redemption and rescue? Realizing that there was nothing that you bring to the table of your salvation except your own sin that made it necessary? If you approach Christ simply as a means of escaping hell, making your life better in some way, I am very concerned for you. I want to be very clear today. My wife and I were talking about this recently. Have we, have we grown as a church because we have a big auditorium? Have we grown because lots of cars out front? Have we grown because you like the music? Do you, in fact, know Jesus? I'm very concerned. I do not want you to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Depart from me, sinner. I never knew you. I am confident that in a room this size, with this many hundreds of people here, that some of you are self-deceived. And you don't know Jesus. And your testimony goes something like, I attend church, I got baptized, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, and there's no gospel. Notice John asks, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What wrath? Whose wrath? Clearly he is speaking of divine wrath, God's wrath against sinners and their sin. To be perfectly clear, God does not send sin to hell, He sends sinners It is coming. The truth is all over. God is a holy God, and we have offended Him. And His his response is righteous. Consider these verses, Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is right now being currently revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God's current wrath is seen in a number of ways. All of us intended to point to your need and pretending the great day of the Lord and wrath which is coming. Romans 2, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant hearts, notice that word? Unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Colossians 3, at the end of one of Paul's very famous vice lists, he writes, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Because of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. Second Thessalonians, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Revelation 19, at the return of Christ from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. My my, my friends, 
I'm saying brothers and sisters, but I'm concerned that some of you are merely friends. It's all over the place. God's wrath is coming. And while everyone today wants to talk about the brokenness of this world and all the evil that exists, if there's a God, how can this be? All of this brokenness and evil is is because of us and our sin and our rebellion and is simply, as C.S. Lewis says, a, a megaphone calling us to repentance. God's wrath is good and right and proper because we are not any of those. J.I. Packer says in his famous work, Knowing God, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. And so John warns them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Obviously the Scripture. Again, it is found throughout Scripture to include, as I recall, if I got this number right, 18 Old Testament references to the coming eschatological day of the Lord, which is the coming day of His righteous judgment. Who warned you to flee? Verse 8, therefore, since God, God's unstayed hand is coming, bear fruit and keep fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, having repented and not just felt a twinge of guilt or even sorrow and remorse over your sin, having actually repented and turned away from your sin, prove it by bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. And we know that John is talking to Jewish people who were convinced that they were all right because of the blood flowing through their veins. In fact, did you know until John... You did not baptize Jews. Only Gentiles were baptized. John's message was shocking. They thought they had some special dispensations. Dispensation. Rabbis even taught that all Jews, children of Abraham, Abraham, all of them have a place in the kingdom. But when God's judgment comes... Though they thought they would be fine, were descendants of Abraham, were God's chosen people, they would not. In essence, John says, family pedigree does not matter. Family connections uh, don't matter. Don't rely on them. Don't miss it. Physical descent does not matter. Jesus said the same thing to the Pharisees that day in John chapter 8. You're counting on your physical descent from uh, Abraham, but your spiritual descent is of greater importance you are of your father, the devil. Family connections do not matter. They have never mattered for our purposes. It does not matter that your family brought you to church your entire life. What matters is the right relationship with God through repentance and faith. Without the, these, I want to say as clearly as I know how, you are hopelessly lost and you are in danger of the coming judgment, the wrath of God. After all, God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these rocks. And we remember the Jews were told to remember the rock, Abraham. This is Isaiah 51, from which they were hewn. Just as God um, chose Abraham, he can do it again, using rocks to be his children. We also remember Jesus will one day uh, later at the triumphal entry as he, uh, as he is coming into Jerusalem and the people are calling out his praises. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The religious leaders told Jesus to command his followers to be quiet, to which Jesus responded, if they do, even these stones will cry out. 
Verse 9, listen, John says, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. The image is that of God raising his axe in judgment, aimed at the roots to cut the tree uh, out from the roots upward. Nothing would be left but uh, but that which is thrown in, in the fire, the fruitless barren tree into the fire of judgment. And he, he's talking about hell, and he's not talking about trees. He's talking about those who do not repent and bring forth fruit, proving their genuine repentance. All that remains for such people is a certain fearful eternal judgment. The passage I re- referenced earlier, when Jesus says to people, depart from me sinners, you who continue in sin, for I never knew you, the text in its context actually says, every good tree bears good fruit. Bad tree, tree bears bad fruit. A, tree cannot produce ba- a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. No, it's not popular to talk about hell today. That's what he's talking about. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, interesting list, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. John was warning them of the impending judgment and wrath. His, his words were heard, causing people to say, well, what then is true repentance? Which leads to our second point, the fruit of repentance. What, what does it look like if it is simply not, you know, doing churchy things? Right? You know, um, prophesying in your name and casting out demons and performing miracles. That would seem like we're in, right? Apparently not. All of those are spectacular, but they are meaningless if not accompanied with true repentance. What does it look like? Can I tell you that what John says in these verses, 10 to 14, have significant ramifications for us American Christians today? Because he hits us right where it hurts, in our money and in our possessions, even though these people to whom he was speaking had a fraction of what we have today. He addresses three groups of people. We're going to make our way quickly through these um, who, having heard the message, ask the simple question, what should we do? What is legitimate fruit in keeping with repentance, improving my faith? The first group is simply the crowds of people, verses 10 to 11. What shall we do? And he, and he would answer, implying these words he spoke uh, were quite customary for him, and the response of the people, customary as well. In other words, this is what he was preaching everywhere. They were questioning him, and he would answer saying, Some rather incredible words. And again, we are so well off financially and materially, even the poorest among us, as compared to these, that these words almost seem nonsensical. What? The the man who has two tunics, stop right there. The tunic was a short waist-length shirt worn as an undershirt, think T-shirt. That's it. That you wear under your outer shirt or dress shirt. The one who has two tunics, Two t-shirts. What? Two? I have a couple dozen. I mean, I don't have to do the laundry every other day. It's ridiculous. I have a drawer full of Fruit of the Loom t-shirts. Right. 
Recently, my wife said to me, we need to go through your t-shirt drawer. Not talking about my Fruit of Loom t-shirts. I'm talking about all the t-shirts that I've gotten through the years that people give to me and get rid of all those free t-shirts that, that you've gotten that you never wear. That's right. I have t-shirts I never wear. Nonsensical. John says, you who have two should give to the one who has none. What in the world does that even mean? I mean, come on, let's move on. I, I mean, come on, Scott. I occasionally take my extra worn-out shirts that I don't want anymore to Goodwill. Check. Got that covered. Next. What's the principle? Simply this. The one who has more than he needs, listen carefully, the one who has more than he needs, that's two, should share with the one who does not. And that is proof of genuine repentance. It says the same thing in the second part of verse 11. The one who has food, not extra food, just food, should share with the one who does not. Well, what does that mean? I mean, i got a pantry and a refrigerator and a freezer full of food. Right. It's hard for us to understand this. Having more than we need, we should share with those who do not. We say, I don't know anyone who's starving. We might need to look a bit harder. They're not only around the world, they're in this county. People all around who don't know where their next meal is coming from. And you wouldn't have to go to the grocery store for a month. Should we as Christians be concerned enough to do something about that? John says we should. By the way, you want a definition of social justice? Let me just go ahead and venture into that. One not tainted by politics and racism. I know, I'm an old white man, but let me venture into a minefield that I am told often that I don't even understand what it means. Social justice is simply this, biblically. Those who have much should share with those who don't. There you go. You don't need to read the books. Those who have much should share with those who don't. Social justice. I'm not talking about systemic racism. I'm not talking about so-called white supremacy. I'm talking about God's people being generous. Share what God has given us so abundantly to people who have need. But, th but then you say, I'll have less. Yes, yeah, yes, you will. Except that you will prove that you have truly repented and God has changed your heart. Because to us, God has given grace which we never deserve, how can we not love and give more even sacrificially? That's just proof of repentance. Next group to approach John were the tax collectors. The Roman system of taxation was oppressive, ruthless, and relentless. It was run much like a business. They even called it tax farming. The Roman Senate would put up for auction the opportunity to tax a certain region of the empire. Those who won the right to tax were called the publicani or the publicans. They, they would be required to pay Rome an, an agreed-upon amount. In fact, they had actually had to pay it at, at auction. They had to pay what they would collect. Anything the publicans collected beyond which they were required to pay, that they already paid, would be profit for them. They would generally hire tax collectors in those regions to do the dirty work of collecting taxes. The, these tax collectors had the same agreement with the publicans that the publicans had with Rome. That is, collect this amount for us. Anything over that amount you, is yours to keep. The local tax collectors were therefore typically citizens of the area, meaning tax collectors in Palestine were Jews. They were the lowest of the lows, uh, of the low, rightly seen, rightly seen as robbers and traitors to their own country. They were. 
In fact, if you were at this time, if you were touched by a tax collector, you were seen as unclean, just being touched by them. There were two, two significant rabbi, uh, rabbis at the time, Hillel and uh, Shammai, and they, they, they usually didn't agree on anything except this. It was okay to lie to a tax collector. These despised people came to John to be baptized and asked them, what shall we do? Very interestingly, John did not tell them to quit their jobs. It's kind of interesting. That means we might need to like IRS agents. He simply said, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Don't fleece the people. Collect what is required, and we assume enough to pay yourself, but don't line your pockets on the backs of the people. Again, John zeroes in on their wealth. True repentance does not result in self-enrichment. Are you listening to me? The man who dies with the most toys does not win. True repentance results in care for people. Dare I call it biblical social justice. It is not leveling the playing field, but it is caring for people in need. Lots of the health, wealth, prosperity, gospel movement need to hear that truth today. I don't even understand that teaching. It's ungodly. Lastly, some soldiers came to John and asked him the same question, what shall we do? Most agree these soldiers were also likely Jews, comprised some sort of the local governing authorities, police force, if you will. It's clear they were underpaid, so they made up for it by extorting the people with their swords. Again, John does not tell them to quit their jobs, but instead be content with their wages. We're never... We're never content. Don't steal, don't threaten, don't extort, don't bring false witness to gain bribes. Be content with your wages. Paul told Timothy, if Christians have food and clothing with that, be content. Because that is far more than we deserve. I'm out of time. Maybe the best way to win friends and influence people for eternity is to tell them truth. There is a God with whom we have to do, to whom one day we will give an account. And if you do not repent, you will perish. Luke 13. Sounds so harsh, so condemning, not winsome. Again, Luke 13. Quoting Jesus. And I say it to you today. Repent or perish and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Stop pursuing wealth as the ultimate goal of life. Prove your repentance by being generous with what God provides. Let's pray. Father, indeed, this is an incredible text. One uh, we don't preach. Um, It sounds so harsh. It sounds not nice. It's true. You've given us so much. 
And to be like you, to be like your son, we need to be giving people. We aren't giving people to earn salvation. We are giving people because we have received salvation. You've graced us with so much. You've warned us of the wrath to come. So my, my prayer is for people in this room. First, that those who have truly repented would bring fruit in keeping with repentance. But then those who have never repented, prayed a prayer, named Jesus, loved Jesus, but loved their sin just as much. I pray that they would hear the warning that wrath is coming and they don't know Jesus. Do your work among us, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.